The views and opinions expressed by individuals on the following program do not necessarily reflect those of the network, Guys Guy Radio, and its platforms. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and get you to think and feel, and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights of the guests I bring you each and every week to the show. We've got a fantastic show for you today. My special guest once again is Larry Grobel, the world's greatest interviewer, and it's part two of our two-part series here on KCAA and my worldwide podcast and YouTube also. We've got some extra goodies for YouTube that I'll get into in a moment. But second part of our interview, and it's a different dynamic than the first interview, and as Larry told me, if we had five interviews, everyone would be different. And he's actually really raising my game. I've learned a lot from him because he's that talented. And he also teaches interviewing at UCLA. And he's a terrific, terrific guy and a, and a mega talent. And I'm so glad he's with us again on the show. So we're going to get into that in a moment. Just want to make a quick footnote on my YouTube channel. We've got the two interviews, parts one and two. And then part three, we've got bonus uh, content where Larry is going to interview me for a half hour. And he's amazing. And then Larry's going to read two short stories in yet a fourth segment. So lots of Larry Grobel on Guys Guys Radio. And you know what? It's worth it. It's a fantastic show. So I appreciate your being with me. I'm not going to get into my healthy habits this week because there's no time I want to devote it all to my conversations with Larry Grobel. And for all you would-be podcasters out there and podcasters, listen up because there's a lot that I learned and hopefully you'll learn also. And I wish you all the best out there. So here we go on Guys Guys Radio. Robert Manny interviews the GOAT himself, Larry Grobel. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay, Guy's Guy's Radio, we're back with the GOAT, the greatest interview of all time, in my opinion, and many others, Larry Grobel. Welcome back, Larry. Nice to be here, Robert. Let me tell you a little bit about Larry before we move on. One, he's the considered the interviewer's interviewer. He's written 29 books, short stories, screenplays, poetry. He's got over 36 Playboy featured interviews with some of the top stars in the world and people who frankly did not want to be interviewed. People like uh, Brando, De Niro, Pacino, Streisand, more and more and more Oscar winners, Nobel laureates, Pulitzer Prize winners, sports figures, musicians, artists, poets. And again, many who don't, did not want to be interviewed. Some observations from our first interview. So number one, my wife asked me after I got out of the interview, she said, how'd it go? And I said, you know what? It was like blue fishing. And she said, tell me about that. So when you go blue fishing, you do all your preparation. You find your spot in the bow of the boat and you get there early and you bring the right bait and then you go out to sea. And then as soon as you're all prepared and then as soon as that blue fish hits your hook, off it goes. And then you're trying to reel it in. You're wrestling with it. You're giving it some line. You're pulling it back in. And eventually you, you reel it in and you land it. And then there's a victory. You feel really good about that. And what I felt was 
I was kind of holding the line and Larry was running out there because I kind of let the interview get away from me a little bit. But then I learned that, Larry, you are kind of a fisherman on your own in how you do this. And I, I, I think there's an analogy between sports fishing and interviewing in that and hunting because you really go out there, you identify who your target is, you lay the traps, you get them out there and you do everything you can to reel them in and open them up and land. And then you celebrate your victory because, you know, it takes greatness to recognize greatness. And I think you recognize that in yourself. And I say that in a very respectful way, because to do what you do at the level you do it at, you have to have greatness. And as an interviewer, interviewers have an advantage in some ways in that we talk to so many different people. And most of those people have an expertise in one area. So that was kind of my take on working with you and talking to you and meeting you for the first time, Larry, and my respect for you in terms of what you do. Thoughts? Yeah. So uh, my question is, um, when you finished talking with your wife, did you say, I, I landed it or I didn't? <laughs> well, it went, it went, I thought it went well, but it, not, I have a standard for myself and I wanted it to be even better. The way I do interviews on the shows, I don't do a lot of post-production. I want it to be raw. I want it to be a conversation and I want it to be the questions that the audience would want us to ask each other. And I want it to be the questions that I want to ask just out of curiosity as an interviewer. And I also want to be the, uh, the ask the questions that you would expect and want to be asked uh, if, if there are any of those. So I was somewhat satisfied, but I thought we could have more of a conversation this time. And I think the vibe's all already different. The other thing I noticed about you, Larry, and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, is that you, you seem to have the capacity from based on your experience to be coding while you listen. That's interesting, but I'm not sure. Define what coding is. Well, doing words, kind of some of the editing, like when you do your coding after a written interview and you break everything down, you make your notes and all that, I could almost feel your thought process because you listen very, very carefully and very specifically to words. Words really matter. It's not just the vibe coming out. You, you really listen to what the other person's saying. And I felt a little bit like, oh my God, I have to be really careful of what, how I say things because I could get it wrong. And I did get it wrong on that second question. And that immediately, immediately woke me up during the interview. The big advice I give to people who try to learn to interview, and, I'm, and you haven't done this, but is never give a, uh, a subject a, a chance to say yes or no. Right. Because if you if you give that kind of thing, they'll just say yes or no. And you don't get any answer. That was my big mistake with Willie Shoemaker. I mean, you know, Willie Shoemaker, the, the great jockey, just didn't have stories to tell. And I would just say, oh, when you did this, when you wrote this, when you won the Kentucky Derby, how is that? That, that must have felt great, didn't it? And you go, yeah, it did. Boom. <laughs> there it goes. Um, so, you know, but that, but other than that, if I'm coding, as you say, it's possible. I, you know, it's, it may not be as conscious as you think it is. Um, it's my big concern sometimes when I'm doing something is if I'm not listening, if I, if my mind wanders for a minute or two, that's dangerous because, because then the subject is talking and you're like, Oh, I just went into space or I'm, I'm thinking about another question or I'm thinking about another area. And I didn't hear what you just said. So I, I I then like uh, will stutter my way into trying to get back to the to, to where we were. So um, I do try to listen. I think listening is, you know, that's the art of the interview is to be able to listen, listen to others. That's the 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 beauty of of learning how to do this. And, and when I was teaching, I said you may never be an interviewer, but you will learn how to listen to other people, and 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 that alone. Will, will will advance you in your jobs throughout life because people aren't used to being listened to. 
people always want to be the talker. They're not necessarily wanting to have to hear what you have to say. You know, it's, it's an ego thing with most people. Um, so I think it's important to listen and to take it from there. You know, it's a bet, it makes for a better conversation for sure. Okay, my very special guest on Guys Guys Radio, it's part two of Lawrence Grobel. Let's talk a little bit about your lessons book. Larry, Larry's got a book called You Talking to Me, Lessons Learned Along the Celebrity Trail. And I've been reading it, and it's really fantastic. And I wrote down something on Lesson 21, and it was, if we don't become ourselves, then we're nothing. This was Ted Harris, and he wrote some uh, kind of uh, musical stuff about historical fiction that, if you connect the dots, led to what is now Hamilton on, on stage. He didn't write Hamilton, but he did something like it, and he just stuck with it, and he stuck with it, and he stuck with it, and he got, he got somebody to do something with it eventually, but he, he, he could have easily have given up. Um, so the question is, is who we are simply who we choose to be, and how important is it to become ourselves? Well, if I think becoming ourselves is a lifelong process. We make it if if, if we get to know who we are by the end, we've we, it's a successful life. If we are confused at the end, maybe it, it isn't so much. Ted Harris is an interesting example. He was my piano teacher. He was my he, I was nine years old when I first uh, got to know him. My sister was eleven. She was taking lessons. Uh, my sister was a far better piano player than I was. So I would, I, I think I quit after a year because I used to say, oh, my, my, my wrists hurt, mom, I can't practice. And I go out and play baseball. Or but Ted Harris was one of the great characters in my life. I love this man. He would come in and, and he, he, he was um, a socialist and he, he, you know, he knew so much about the way the world worked, you know, politically. And he would talk about it and he would, his, when we, he play, I remember his pinky would always be going up and down. And, uh, you know, he said to me once, I had a nervous breakdown when I was one year old. Since then, everything has been up for me, you know, and <laughs> he charged five dollars a lesson. And when my sister grew up and had a kid and the kid became 12 and got a piano, she got Ted Harris to come teach. He still charged five dollars. And she said, Ted, you, you know, times have changed. He says, no, if it was that, that's what I charge for your family. That's what I'll always charge. In other words, he was never going to be a rich man. But he wrote some songs. He wrote a, a one that got into called Crying in the Streets and made it into uh, the Rhythm and Blues section. But he, he came across New American Library published this, I think. It was, it was um, the first president that William Collis Williams did as a, in 1936 or something for the New York World's Fair, 36, 39. It never got done. And he he gets to read this and he says, this is a genius. This is great. The words sing to me. So he decides he'll write the opera for it. And it's amazing. He didn't get any. Nobody asked him to do it. And after he wrote it, he went to he he went to New Jersey. He looked up where where William Collis Williams lived. He drove out there. He sent him a, a, a record of his called Bumpo the Ballerina. He drove out and knocks on his door. And he said, and, and he says, what are you doing? He says, well, he says, did you get my record? Did you, you know, he says, yeah, but it didn't, it didn't make any sense. So he gets, invites him in, Ted listens to the record and it's on the wrong, it's on 45, it should have been a 33 or a 78, whatever. So Ted sits down and he, he had a piano and he starts singing the first president, Benedict Arnold, da, 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 da. And, and William Carson says, this is great. This is terrific. No one had ever done this before. And eventually it got done in Rutherford, but you know, it was, I wrote a piece about this. This, the, because in, in seven, 1976, uh, Bicentennial, I thought it was a perfect thing that the, that the, the government should do is pr produce this uh, opera. They didn't do it. 
but um, they hired somebody from Czechoslovakia or something to write this, and it was really amazingly stupid. But but Ted just never gave up. He just believed in himself. He wrote sonatas. He wrote sonatinas. He wrote operas. He had them in a closet. They filled up the thing. It didn't matter to him. And in a sense, I feel very much inspired by that because that's what I'm doing today. I mean, if you want to extrapolate all the lessons I learned, I said, you know what? Please yourself. Write for yourself. And Ted was that way with me. You know, he's just like anything else was he wasn't satisfied with. But if he was writing his music and he was composing, he loved it. He, and he, and he, he could, you know, if he, he would do piano lessons, he would, do, he would enjoy that. Made just enough to survive. I'm doing that with my stories. Um, I, 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 my books, I've made a decision. I'm not going to let publishers decide what my career is going to be. I'm going to create my own career. I'm going to write my stuff. I have the opportunity to do it. I may not get readers the way I used to, but I am going to be, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy. Every time I write a story, I'm, I sit, I, I read it to my wife. I'll read it to a friend. I say, hey, this is, listen to this. I'm not, I'm, I don't, I don't want to be judged in a sense. I just want to write it. And if you like it, great. If you don't, oh, well, I'll move on. Kind of the second part of that, and it's t- tangential. I could, I could have held it back, but is who we are simply who we choose to be? And I say that in relationship to some of the interviews with the stars. In other words, Cary Grant. He was Archibald Leach, I think. And then it's been Cary Grant, and nobody's exactly like Cary Grant, Judy, 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 and all that. And he became this character, and then he was always Cary Grant forevermore. And Mae West, you interviewed Mae West, and she was this bigger-than-life character. And Or Dolly Parton. I mean, everybody sees Dolly Parton as this bigger-than-life character. Is is that simply who these people chose to be? Do you, have you found that with Hollywood uh, working with stars that they've 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 led themselves in this direction and said, "I can land here," or does it just happen? And is it you a know, good thing? I, well, look, I'll give you an example. When when Henry Winkler was the Fonz, he went, you know, and he was the biggest star on television at the time for Happy Days. He goes to a party and he meets George C. Scott. And George E. Scott, who he greatly admired as an actor and all this, and, you know, and Henry Winkler knew that the Fonz was not exactly, uh, you know, Brando in, in, in Streetcar Named Desire. I mean, it's a different kind of character. But what, what Scott said to him was, he said, enjoy this, enjoy it now, he says, because you may never get to hear again. And, and, and in a sense, what, and it was really true. I mean, Henry Winkler went on to make a few movies and stuff. You can't name them, basically. And, uh, you know, and then he became a producer, you know, and he produced a lot of stuff. But, um, you know, it, it's very difficult when you make something that is so big that you become this thing. You know, look at Bruce Springsteen. That When, when Bruce Springsteen got on the cover of Time and Newsweek on the same week, that was a yeah. very rare thing. It was a mistake. Yeah. It was a mistake for Time and Newsweek to do it at the same time, but they didn't know, you know. Um, but all of a sudden, it's like, you know, you get typecast into something that, that this is who you are. I think Spruce, Springsteen has broken out of that. I think he's, you know, he's changed it. Um, it. It's a very difficult thing when you do something that is so big that, that you know, you have to break away from that. But it's not impossible. It's not impossible. And I think, you know, as much as we love Dolly Parton, uh, I think Dolly Parton has really br- has a very broad range because she's written over three thousand songs, you know. And you know, we 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 love the songs we know of her. We know her character hasn't changed too much, you know. She's a sort of bubbly, you know, woman who has been that way throughout what we've seen. But listen, I've been with these people 
when they're not on, you know, I, you know, I've driven in a, in a car with Dolly where we went to the beach and, you know, and, and, and a man, you know, shouts at her and she says to me, Oh, and I left my gun. I can imagine. Did I tell you this story before? No. Um, well, you know, and she grabbed my arm because we're just walking down the beach, but she's Dolly Parton, right? She still that looks that way. And this guy's sitting on the bench like this, and he says, "Hey, <laughs> I don't think he knew he was her, you know." Just yeah, and I'm, you know, this was a big guy. He looked like a football player, and and um, Dolly grabs my arm and says, "Oh, damn," she says, "and I left my gun in in, in my purse in, <laughs> in your car," and I go, "Your gun." And I'm thinking I'm going to have to fight this guy. If he approaches us, I'm going to get killed. You know, so, you know, but it was like, it was a different Dolly. You know, I don't, you don't think about Dolly carrying a gun, do you? Um, But, you know, it's, it's, they're all different when you, when you, when you're behind the scenes. So Cary Grant, who was, you know, taking LSD, he was like, you know, he was hallucinating half the time in his life. You know, it's a different Cary Grant than the Cary Grant that we've seen. Rock Hudson, you didn't know what Rock Hudson was gay. You didn't understand, you know, when we were watching his persona and his character. So uh, nobody is who they seem to be when they are on the big screen. That's, a, that, that, you know, that, that's to me um, uh, a given in a sense. But we don't know that because we only know them from the big screen unless you get to spend time with them. And then they're different. Your book, The Name. Uh, it got me. You, comma, talking to me, which makes yeah, perfect sense. It, it's a play <laughs> off of Taxi Driver. And I'm wondering if this was uh, conscious because the character in Taxi Driver, he he listens to all the people in the cab all the time. So he is like a journalist in his own way, but he's yeah. also a vigilante. So my question to you, Larry, is are are you a vigilante? Are you a journalist? And are you a vigilante? And was that a conscious decision to use that quote as a title of your book? Well, the original title was going to be uh, something Bob Knight said to me. Uh, I, I struggle with titles at times. You know, you want to come up with the right one. But with, with this, it was, you know, my first book, my memoir was You Show Me Yours. So I wasn't play. I didn't, I, I didn't think of it at the time. But I said, oh, it's probably a mistake to do the next book, You, again, with starting with the word you. You know, I did it twice. But when I was thinking about it, what is what am I really talking about? It's like I'm writing about what I learned from these people, what they said to me when I talked to them. So they were talking back to me. So the, the, the interview book, The Art of the Interview, is about you know uh, how you do it, how you do these interviews with these people. So it's from my point of view. The other is, is what they said to me that may have changed my thinking in some way. It's like some kind of epiphany I may have had uh, okay. along the way. And so it was you know, it was you, the the subject, comma, talking to me, and that's that's really, uh, you know, how I saw it. You know, uh, in, in in as a title goes, as far as me being a vigilante, uh, sure, why not? <laughs> I don't think that is an insult. I mean, I, I you know, I I do see uh, that I that I'm going in, and I, I understand. The idea of Kissinger saying I was a gunslinger, uh, like a, a lone gunman going in again, you know, to do that. I feel I feel that way, too. I feel like I'm, I'm preparing. My way of preparing is not to take a gun and, and, and make sure my bullets are all in there, but it's to take my equipment. It's to make sure I have two tape recorders working. It's to test them. It's to make sure the batteries, are, you know, it's all that. It's a ritual. You know, it's how it's what how I dress. Sometimes 
you know, I'll take my clothes with me and I'll leave it in the car of my shirt or something. Why? Because as I'm driving and I'm thinking, maybe I'm a little nervous. Maybe I'm starting to sweat. I don't know, you know, but I want to be sure. as clean as I can be when I go in. So I'll change in the car if I, if I feel I need to. Um, I, you know, I, so when I, when I get to your door, I am focused on your opening of that door. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm there. I, I want to be totally present. Um, and, and I think that's really, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be sort of like thinking about anything else. I don't, you know, lately there have been people I know who have been dying, you know, there, I've been writing about, uh, relatives as well. And, and it's, it's a difficult time in a way. If I had to go do an interview, I have to eliminate all of that. I have to stop thinking about the the sadness or the tragedies or the happiness or the good, whatever it is. Um, and I just have to just be focused on who I'm about to see. And that has right. to be the most important thing in my life at that moment. When I leave, I can leave and become myself again. But I think focus is what we're really talking about here. Larry Grobel, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio, he's interviewed. Let me throw some more names. Last time I named about 30 stars. Angela jo- Angelina Jolie, John Voigt, Sharon Stone, Kurt Russell, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Patty Hearst, Warren Beatty, and many, many more. So we'll keep going with that. But I want to move over to a, a little bit of an offbeat topic. And that is, you seem to have a real fondness for performance art. What is the role of performance art in your life? I remember you were following this guy who lived in his car uh, for a couple of weeks, and that that meant being in his car all the time. And uh, is performance art all about the experience? And and who is transformed? Is it the artist or is it the audience? Performance art really kind of blew my mind in a a lot of ways. Um, I, I, I just, I've always been fascinated by art. I've known artists. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I, you know, I've seen, and most of the art I've known is was, was standard kind of art. Let's say sculpture, painting, you know, drawings. And along came this art in the '70s that you know there were happenings that that were they were called first, and then it became performance art with people like Chris Burton, Paul McCarthy, Barbara Smith, uh, and and then there were people in Europe doing these things as well. Uh, Eves Klein. I mean, this guy jumped out of a four, a two or three story building, you know, like, you know, face first or something like that it's a, as a performance. The the one I uh, the, the the Paul McCarthy is the one who sort of like was my doppelganger or my, you know, sort of my um, my opposite. I mean, the, the person who is exact doing exactly the things I would never want to do. But yet I was attracted to what he was doing. So it was affecting me. And to me, art is something that that is strong when it affects you, when you get an emotion out of it. Um, when you see Guernica by by Picasso, you should get an emotion from that. Sure. You know, I mean, there's something about it that 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 you know, which makes it so great. Um, uh, so any so so with this art, it was just he was doing things like shaving his body hair, uh, and then and, and, and but not just with shaving cream, he would put ketchup and mustard on. It. He would he would tape you know, uh, uh, bandages around his head and, and stuff his mouth with 20 hot dogs, you know, like this. And, and, you know, and, and by the way, the, a photograph of that sells for like thirty, forty thousand dollars I mean, is, 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 is an interview a form of performance art? Maybe perhaps at its highest level, <laughs> if you can go to that level where it's, a, you know, you know, it's the interviewer should not be, uh, that present in an interview 
Um, you know, in other words, uh, you know, it's an, it's, I may be talking to an artist interacting, but my job really is to get you to understand that person, uh, in, in the interview you and I are doing, you have, as much as we'd like to say, it's a conversation. If you don't get out of me, the, you know, the, the insights that you're looking for, then it doesn't matter how bright you are because you can always talk to a camera. You don't need to talk to anybody else. So if you're doing this, you know, so if I'm talking to an artist, a performance artist, I'm trying to get to an understanding of what they do. Why do you do what you do? You know, Chris Burden got shot in the arm. He had his lawyer with a rifle shoot him in, 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 when he was in Irvine. And it, and it was a shot heard around the art world. It was, um, it made the cover, it was on an art forum. It was in New York Magazine. It was like Esquire. I mean, everyone was right. Is this art? Is this crazy? You know, well, it was art, it turned out because he became a quite, a, quite an amazing artist and his work sold into the millions of dollars. And you see his work, you know, uh, went beyond performance. You know, he went into sculptures and lighting and you go to the LA County Museum now and you see all of these light fixtures. Uh, you know, that are there and everybody who gets married these days goes and takes a picture with all those, you know, the lights. That's Chris Burden's work. Um, so uh, there, I, I, it's hard. It's a it's a it's a question that I don't know if I can answer as far as seeing an interview as a performance art, because performance art is like something else. It's out, it's out there. Performance art was was a one of a kind thing. It was a one off. You know, you'd go to us, you'd see somebody get shot in the arm. You're not going to see that again. He's not going to do that again. You know, Burton went up, uh, you know, he would, he would, in the University of Ch in Chicago, uh, at the, uh, in a museum, he put himself in like a cocoon, you know, like, a, and he was, it was on the wall. He was inside this, this, I guess, plastic or whatever inside the wall. You couldn't see him and he was just there. Now, did he come down at night? Did he? How did he go to the bathroom? He did the same thing at the Ronald Feldman Gallery, where he was. You know, they built a platform, a triangular platform at the top in, towards the ceiling, and he was up there. You couldn't see him. People would come in and say, "Okay, he's up there." You know, it was a feeling, a sense. You know that he would do that. He, you know, there was a lot of very strange stuff. These, you know, some of these people did. I bought an artist. I, I Barbara Smith did this performance at an uh, uh she did an auction of of all these different items and one of them was she auctioned herself you could buy her i bought her you know i was the only one who bid <laughs> it was crazy i didn't expect to get her she came to live with me for a week now theoretically i own that person right i bought that work of art i could do anything i want with her and that's scary isn't it i mean sure. when you think about what you do um and what i said to her was i want to learn what this is all about and you are in the middle of this you know all the artists who are doing these things you know what's going on teach me so every day every night we went to another performance we went to see these artists we ended up going in pasadena there was an overpass uh that's a, a where the cars go and the, the overpass there's three of them the freeway there was a guy who always when he was young always imagined looking up at the overpass and seeing some kind of image so he wanted to create it. So he created a, a cock and a bull, a cock being a, a rooster and a, and a bull. But he you know, made out of cardboard and maybe it was 20 feet high or something. So you could see it as you're driving. And like, it would be astounding as you're driving by, you look up and you see the, a giant bull and you just keep going as you're driving. Can I just see that? That was his. So Barbara knew he was going to be doing this. She's, let's. So we went and helped him. 
we 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 were actually I'm I'm helping him you know bang it in and whatever and it was taken down a, a couple hours later <laughs> by the police or whatever. So but who who was transformed from performance art then? Is it the artist or is it the person who's exper- who who is it the person watching the consumer if you will? I I would like to think that that performance art is is the as uh, an intellectual art. You know, it's a, it's an idea art, although it's often very physical. So obviously the artist is being transformed. It's doing it. You know. The, one of the Kipper kids who married late, uh, uh, Bette Midler, that, you know, one of the, the, I went to a performance there where you walked in and there was a television monitor. The first thing you saw was a penis with, a two, with two eyes over the open hole. And so it looked like a mouth and it, and it talked to you. It was <laughs> just, he did this. So you walk in, you say, already, you know, something strange going on here. And then he goes in and there he and his brother, I think he, 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 he had, there were two of them, the Kipper kids. They, they were going to, the, the performance was like a, a, um, a, a boxing ring. And they were each going to drink enough beer to get totally drunk. And they were going to box until they threw up or whatever. This was the and here are all these people watching around. We watched them drink it. We did. We we witnessed this whole thing. Yeah, they were performing, you know. So they're obviously experiencing it. But we are watching it and are also having an experience. I saw another guy uh, from Europe. He was a famous uh, performance artist. He had a, a carcass. It was a cow carcass. And it was the cavity, you know, was open. So like, and the blood, and he he would he would chop away with an axe. And the blood is dripping, and he had a somebody from the audience. Now I I guess if somebody that must have been a friend wasn't going to be me, but you know who, who <laughs> laid down underneath it, and the blood is dripping down on this guy, and this guy's you know, and I'm thinking, what am I seeing? But it's like, yeah, you walk away and you're disturbed, and you think about it, and you say. Is there something there? And some of it is, and sometimes there's something there. But it definitely affects you. Uh, it's, it was a very strong period of uh, of the art world, and a lot of these artists have gone on and become well known. You know, they taught at UCLA. Paul McCartney and Chris Burden both became professors at UCLA and taught and went on to teach this. Well, Just so everybody knows, it's not it's Paul McCarthy that Larry's referring to. It's not 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 the Beatle. Speaking of which, let's get into let's shift gears a little bit, Larry, and get into some people you've interviewed and some some tips and maybe some circumstances that you faced missed opportunities. Did you ever have questions that you wanted to ask and you didn't during the interview? And what did you do about that? Did you go back and uh, reconnect with the uh, talent uh, subject or did you just let it slide and say, well, I, I didn't get that question in there this time, but maybe next time? Well, if it, if it was the like the Playboy interview, I I, I just felt obligated to get everything I wanted in there. If I was, if there was another question I had or something wasn't answered, I, I, I would do my best to get back to them, call them, you know, can I you know, talk to the publicist again, say, I'd like to, whatever, to get back. Um, so, uh, but there's always missed, you know, there's always, as you read something, as you, you know, you, you read about it, um, you, you realize. Any that stick out, to stand out for you? No. N- that were no, unresolved or you, since you. No, in- I, but, but I'm thinking about something I saw yesterday. Sometimes I was thinking about, oh, I wanted to interview this person, and I didn't know enough about that person. Now, you know, when you find out later, oh, they did this or they did that. I did I know about that? Had I, had I interviewed? Uh, oh, maybe it was Aretha Franklin. Yes, I was watching Genius, the the Aretha Franklin thing. Fantastic I, show. I wanted to interview. Playboy said yes. I'll tell you the, the interviews I didn't do that I wanted to do that guy I had the assignment to do. 
Fred Astaire, Leonard Bernstein, Aretha Franklin, John Updike, Tom Wolfe uh, uh, come to mind, and, and, and Alfred Hitchcock. All of them I, I had thought I was doing, all of them I had given, I had written questions for a lot. Some of them I was totally prepared to do, like Hitchcock and, and Leonard Bernstein, and they got canceled the last minute. With Aretha, I hadn't prepared for Aretha, but I got the assignment, and she just didn't want to do Playboy. You know, she didn't want to do it. Now, did I know that uh, what I'm seeing in this movie, uh, in, in, in the uh, National Geographic thing, Genius. Uh, about, about her father being the womanizer he was, about uh, the first husband? Did, did I know that she had a child when she was, you know, 14? You know, she was pregnant. I didn't, I, I don't, I'm, I'm learning it now. In my recent, you know, I was thinking about, oh, I wonder if I had gotten the assignment, would I have known that stuff? Would that have been somewhere? Or is that just coming out, you know, a lot of this stuff? So I, you know, that would be coming out in the research. Had I not known that, and had I done the interview, and I had missed some of the really important early stuff, I would have been very disappointed with myself. So, you know, I, but I think about those things still, you know, I, I, when I see people, you know, that I could have interviewed or that I did interview, I'm always curious to see if there's something I didn't know <laughs> that I might have missed. How about any questions you'd want to take back? Mm, the only question I would have taken back is the one I asked Warren Beatty about his uh, tax, uh, that he owed a lot of money in taxes. And it was over the phone because I hadn't gotten to it. And we, he said, let's finish this. On, we'll continue on the phone. I said, great. So I called him. Oh, he called me. See, I didn't have his phone number. A lot of times they won't give you their phone number, but they'll said they'll call you. They either will or they won't. You know, so he called. And um, and I one of the I said, Warren, you know, I said, I, I didn't ask you about this one point seven million dollars you owed in taxes or whatever it was. And he just said, oh, Larry, I'm getting another call. Let me get back to you. And that was it. That was mm -hmm. it. So, yes, I would take that one back because I wanted to get more out of them. But in the most part, no, I, I don't regret it. I mean, Sid Caesar got angry with me when I asked him if he would be the professor. If, you know, I guess his character of the professor was very good. And, you know, and I thought maybe I could ask him a couple of questions as the professor. Right. And, and, and he just got so mad at me. I was really surprised, you know. Yeah. And he just said, I'm not a monkey. I don't perform on, on demand. <laughs> you know, I get paid to do what I do. I'm not. The, I, and I'm, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I, 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 too bad I missed getting the professor. But, you know, had I. I don't regret asking him that because I, you know, I, I don't remind that response. I may have asked it too soon and then I would have regret it. Maybe I should have asked it later, that kind of thing. But no, I, I don't really have regrets about anything I've asked that I could think of that come to mind. Let me ask some of the, uh, a couple of questions. I want to make sure I get them in. All right. On a bucket list, either historical figures or current figures, anybody that uh, you still want to interview that you haven't gotten to yet. No, the only one that really I would like to do as a book even is is Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan to me, uh, I listen to him all the time. You know, I still do. You know, I mean, we go I, and it, he's the one in my car. I have all of his CDs, and we, you know, whenever we travel anywhere, it's it's mostly Dylan and Tom Waits. I, I like him as well. Um, but and I would like to do Tom Waits as well. Actually, I think that they're two fascinating characters to me. I'm not characters but geniuses you know and, and and um and they are the in a sense that it's the they're the voices that ring in my head you know it's the songs that they sing it's the it's it's the phrases that they use and uh so i i would love to spend time with them 
you know, athletes, yeah, I think LeBron James is quite an interesting character because he's become political beyond the athlete. You know, I, I like that. Um, you know, I, uh, Don DeLillo, Cormac McCarthy, you know, some of these novelists that, you know, that don't really talk, you know. Um, of course, Thomas Pinchon would be at the top of my list because nobody even knows if he's alive or dead anymore, but nobody knows what he looks like. You know, no, he, he does. He's sort of the, the Salinger of his, his day. In the past, J.D. Salinger, of course, Greta Garbo, the people who didn't talk, any pope. I, I'd do anything to, to interview a pope, you know. <laughs> yeah. How about somebody who talks too much, maybe? Trump. Well, how would be? Would you like oh, to interview I'll, him? I'll, and what would be your approach? I would do Trump in a minute. In a minute, um, but wouldn't be a minute. Actually, it would be. It would be. It would have. I'd need a month of preparation probably to do the minute. But um, but I, uh, you know, I know Trump would. I know it would be He's a tough. failure. He stream, steamrolls a lot of the uh, in the video does. interviews. So uh, yeah. maybe getting them in long form. You know, no, would be a better way, way to do it. The only way I wouldn't do it, I yeah. wouldn't do this kind of interview with him because he could, he, he would just press a button and it would be over. Um, uh, but he would also just kick me out anyway, you know, if I told him. But no, Trump would be, you know, at the top of my list of uh, uh, wanting to see if I could penetrate the psyche. I think I succeeded with Bob Knight. Uh, and I think that Trump is very much like Bob Knight. Uh, so I think I would know how to pre be prepared for it, which would be flatter, 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 you know, just build up his ego. Just say what a wonderful thing he did. Show, you know, Biden's doing, I would be, I'd be, you know, doing things. Playing the game. Yep. Yeah. And then, then, you know, every once in a while trying to sneak in uh, something that might get him to reveal himself a little bit more. But I don't know if he can reveal himself. You know, this, you're deal, dealing with a man who is really self-delusional, I think. So I don't, I don't know if he'd ever get out of him. Larry, you are an expert. And again, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio, Larry Grobel, the world's greatest interviewer. You are an expert at unmasking people. Uh, just for the benefit of our listeners and some of the folks who do podcasts or whatever, what are some of the key attributes that a uh, interviewer really needs to have to be able to get beyond the mask? Well, I think we talked in the very beginning. Number one, you have to be able to listen. So, you know, if, you, if you're listening to somebody as they talk, there are certain, uh, you know, uh, take, keep a notepad by your side, you know, so you can just take a note, you know, about something so you can get back to something they said, you know, uh, mother, father, you know, childhood, accident, whatever it would be. And, I, 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 you know, it, it's the same with any profession. It's really your preparation. If you're prepared, uh, if you've done your research, and you've done your homework. So if you're in school, you got to do your homework. Uh, you know, to me, writing is homework. You know, basically, it's people who like to do the essays when they were in in high school and college and the papers they wrote. Well, what do you think you're doing when you're writing? You're you're expanding that. Um, you're taking it to the next level. Uh, and and when you're interviewing somebody, I think you know you want to just you want to your research is to read everything that you 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 can possibly read about the person. If it's a novelist. You want to read their novels. If it's James Michener or Joyce Carol Oates, that's a huge assignment. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, you know, it, I, I was I, I prepared. I, I spent three or four months before I would agree to see any of these people because I would be reading every day, day and night. All I do is read their work. And I never got to read all of their work, but I would I at least read 10 books for, by each of them. I turned down doing Stephen King. Because I didn't want to read all of his work, I just you know, <laughs> I like his work. You know, I think he's a really good writer. But at the time, I just didn't want to do it. I turned down uh, 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 Clint Eastwood 
because I didn't agree with a lot of what he, I was reading about. I said, well, why am I wasting my time talking to him? That was a mistake, but that was before he became a director. And I, I, I really would, okay. you know, I, I regret anything I've turned down, but that's the way it is. Well, speaking of, of actors, uh, after all, with all your experience interviewing actors, what, what do you think of actors? Um, are, are you think they're smarter than you expected or not? Or is it, I guess it's an individual case. The reason I'm asking that is, you know, some people said, somebody once said to me, oh, models, uh, you know, dumb models or something. And I said, they're, they're not, because look at the, the life experience they have. They travel, they hang around with rich people, they get exposed to many things that none of us get exposed to throughout our entire lives. And with, with actors, it's, it's similar in that, you know, they, they are engaging in a, in a business that takes them worldwide travel. They're working with really super intelligent people, very creative people. What what are your thoughts about that, Larry? Uh, what are your thoughts about your feelings about actors after having interviewed so many of them over the years? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it somewhat in between? Oh, no, is it all it, individual? No, it, it's definitely individual, but it is positive. Um, I, I mean, when I interviewed uh, Brando, and he said to me, how, how can you interview actors all the time? Don't you get bored? I mean, it's, you know, and I said, Marlon, I said, you're all very different. I and if I, once I, if I got bored, I would stop doing it. And I never stopped doing it in a sense. Cause I, you know, if I, if I would get asked to do certain people, I would do it. Look, Al Pacino didn't graduate high school. A lot of these, a lot, a lot of actors, you know, never advanced their education. Jodie Foster did, you know, but not that, you know, uh, 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 Sharon Duk Stone, David Duchovny, the few that have, but for the most part, David Duchovny, but for the most part, uh, a lot of them haven't, but, they have, a, as you say, they have world experience that's very different. I asked Pacino, how do, you, how do people react to you? How do, how do, especially when, you know, you're meeting the heads of studios and, you know, the, the people at, at the top, in a sense, you know, the, the, uh, of your profession. And he said, everybody's nervous around him when they first meet him. Why? Because he's never really talked very much. He never gave a lot of interviews. He didn't give any until I talked to him with the Playboy. So he, he was mysterious. Silent people like De Niro are mysterious people. You don't know if they're smart or not, but they. But you get the sense from their acting, they could be pretty profoundly disturbing people, right? Got it. Um, everybody who met Al was is like they were meeting Don Corleone, you know, and you know he was the guy who just could give you with a stare. You he could freeze you. And he told me that you know this happened to him all the time when he would walk into a, you know. Uh, uh, a meeting with a, the head of a studio, they were all very, very deferential to him, and they and he didn't say anything. He just kept <laughs> he kept quiet, <laughs> I, I and I, I that you know. I mean, one time he was offered the, the Godfather too. Uh, you know, he said he wasn't going to do it. You know, after the first, he, he wasn't thinking of doing a second one. And uh, they had a suitcase or an attaché case on the desk, and they actually. All opened it and it was uh, I don't know a million or two million dollars. They was and he just looked at him like they were crazy. He wasn't he wasn't going to take it and walk out. He just didn't say anything, you know. Wow. So you know, so I, I I have an appreciation for a lot of actors. I I asked Freddie Prince. I was in his bedroom, and he had no books on his bookshelf. There was nothing. They were empty. I said, "Where are your books?" And he says, I, I, I don't have books. I said, really? I said, I said, I collect first editions. Mm. He said, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, suddenly it's like I'm talking. 
But I said, well, what I said, I said, I explained it to him, you know, the first time. Oh, he says, I have some first issues of comic books that he had. Okay, that's where we'll go with it. Let's go that way. Now, I'm not saying he was stupid, but I'm saying he was uneducated, you know, but then we got into why, you know, we got into, you know, and we got, you know, and the same thing with Chris O'Donnell. I interviewed him once. He was like 20, 25 at the time. And I was asking him some philosophical questions or deeper questions. And he, and, and he said, I, I can't, my father can answer that. I can't answer that. Right. You know what I mean? It was like, at I least he was up front and open. And, you know, so I, you, you sort of like, you see where they're at intellectually, uh, educationally, you know, and, and, and then you can go with that. If, they, if they're readers, they like books, they like to talk about, you know, Alice Munro or, or John Updike or Ulysses, or, you know, great. I'll go there with them. If they rather talk about comic books and cartoons, I'll go there with them wherever I, wherever they're comfortable, but they're all different. Last question. The rewards of your work. I find for myself just doing this work, interviewing people is such a pleasure because maybe I've interviewed over 500 people and they're all experts in a specific area. And that allows me to get some information out of all 500 areas. Now, 499 of those people, they don't know much about the other areas that I'm interviewing people about. So for me as an interviewer, my reward is learning so much about humanity, about all these different skill sets, et cetera. What is your greatest reward as being the world's greatest interviewer been throughout your career, Larry? I, number one, I'm not the world's greatest interviewer. That's like, <laughs> let's, let's let's dispel that one, okay? Um, it's, it's, Who it's, is? Who is? There is no world's greatest interviewer. Okay. You know, so but but you know, it, it's like it, it, Joyce Carol Oates wrote that thing about me being the Mozart of interviewers, and I'm thinking, okay, so who's the Chopin? Who's the Beethoven? Right, you know, who's the Tchaikovsky? They, I mean, you know, it's 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 a it's a little bit. You know, it's going to go on my my grave site. So I think it's the same thing. I think it's it's the fact that. Uh, it, it has allowed me to enter so many different disciplines, so many different fields. I didn't know much about, the, you know, the great sculptures until I did Henry Moore. I didn't know really uh, uh, much about the science when I did went to see uh, uh, Linus Pauling, and you know, and I started to, you know, try to understand the general theory of anesthesia, which is what he came up with, and. You know, I mean, and sickle cell anemia, which he, I mean, he, he understood these things. I didn't, but I read about them. I got, you know, so it's like, it's like advanced, it's like graduate school. You know, you, you're constantly learning about different things. With James Michener, I mean, the guy was writing about everything. You know, he was writing about um, uh, in Centennial or whatever. He's writing about, if, you know, first the dinosaurs happen and then comes this and then comes that. And then we get to man, you know. So, so. You know, I, I'm basically studying all the time and thinking about it. They make me think about things that I hadn't thought about before. And so I'm being enriched. Um, and, and in a sense, that's why, in a sense, I, I can have a conversation with anybody. Because, as you know, uh, when you talk to a lot of different people and you do prepare for them, you are enriching yourself. You know, you may not be. What I learned I used to have so many stories, Robert, that, that, that I would talk about. You know, I, I, I've had a very uh, eclectic life. I've, I've, I've traveled a lot. I lived three years in Africa. I spent a year traveling abroad, uh, you know, and I was in, I've been in India. I've married a Japanese woman. I had an African girlfriend. I, you know, I had a Dutch girlfriend. So I've had, I, you know, I've, 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 I've had a, a kind of a full life in a, in a lot of ways. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very 
lucky to have you know lived a life like this. But when I would talk to people, they would like to hear these stories. Brando loved my stories. I mean, you know, it's been days talking about these things. But they were in my head so much, too. And I got tired of telling my own stories. I wanted new stories, right? So I wrote a memoir. I got it out of my life. You Show Me Yours is about the first 30 years of my life. All of the sex craziness, all of the 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 the, the traveling and the you know right up through being dealing with Streisand for you know eight nine months and dealing with Brando and being on his island, meeting my final my wife my wife having a child. End of story. I got rid of rid of all those things from in my head. I didn't know that's what would happen, but it did. It was like I not because I put it on paper. I stopped thinking about him. I haven't told those stories in years. That, that were in my head. I haven't told the stories that were in that are in the book, and I've opened my mind up to, for for new stories, you know. And, and so, you know, you you learn about that, and it's one of the wonderful benefits of writing, you know, is that you learn that if you write something down, if you get a story out, you don't think about it. What I find lately, I've been I've written twenty new stories since January. For I see now, I'll have a third storybook, but I've been writing them so quickly. I don't know why it's never happened like this before that when I go back, I see, I see a title that I just wrote about three weeks ago. I don't remember what the story was. So it's like new to me. It's, it's kind of an exciting. You're, you're, in, you're in the flow, Larry, you're in yeah, the flow yeah. right now. Keep it going. That's awesome. Well, yeah. listen, uh, we're tight on time. I apologize. I gotta, I gotta interrupt here because we're going to end the first part of today's second part of our two interview series with Larry Robel. What we're going to do, folks, I'm going to wrap this part, but then we're going to take a quick pause. And then what we're going to do is Larry's going to interview me. So I'll get some more lessons there. And then Larry's going to read a couple of his stories, his short stories that he's been talking about. So first, to put a button on today's interview, first of all, thank you. You may not think you're the world's greatest interviewer, but you, to me, you are, and you're a great inspiration. I really love your work. And I love your writing because it's very easy to digest, yet it has a lot of meaning to it. And you've been a great inspiration to me. And I'm very, very appreciative of your spending the time with me. And I learned a lot through both of these interviews uh, on the fly. So thank you very much, Larry Grobel, for being my special guest on Guys Guys Radio. You're welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, what an awesome interview with the world's greatest interviewer, Larry Grobel. He's the GOAT in my, in my mind and in so many others, yet he's a humble man. So he said, no, I'm not the world's greatest interviewer. Yes, you are, Larry Grobel. You are the world's greatest interviewer, and particularly in the written word, because with over 36 feature uh, long-form interviews in Playboy magazine and also the books of his interviews with Brando and Capote and Pacino and Streisand. He is the man, and I learned a lot, and I hope you guys learned a lot out there. So let's talk about that. What did we learn? Well, I think the takeaways, if you're a podcaster or a wannabe podcaster, are the following. You need some attributes, key attributes like you need in anything else to succeed. And I think for interviewing, you need these five things. Number one, you've got to be prepared. You've got to know your subject. You have to have some interesting questions. You don't want to ask closed-ended questions, yes and no answers. You want to really get to the core of who that individual is and what their work is. So you've got to prepare, and that takes time. Two, you have to have confidence that you're willing to go toe-to-toe with anybody who you're interviewing. And I don't mean in an adversarial way, but I mean you want to be able to quickly be comfortable uh, talking to anybody and getting on the same wavelength with them and developing a rapport quickly. 
Three, you have to be adaptable because no matter how well you prepare, it's like anything else. Like Mike Tyson said, all the preparation doesn't matter. Once I punch you in the face, you're in a fight. And I think that's what happens many times in interviews that you do all the preparation and then the interview starts to go in a certain direction. You have to keep control. And that means you have to be adaptable and you got to go with the flow a little bit and then you got to slowly steer it back to where you want to go. You've got to have some humor. You have to have some fun because it's like anything else in life. If you're too wound up, you take it too seriously, it can get in the way. And last but not least, and I think this is the intangible attribute that you just have to have. And that is to be successful interviewing, you need to be curious. I'm curious. Howard Stern is very curious. Joe Rogan's curious. I, I think it really makes a difference. So if, you, if you're just phoning it in on the interviews and you're not that interested, don't do this. But if you're seriously curious about speaking with people and what they have to say and what information they can share, then podcasting could be right for you. But you've got to be curious. and It's got to come from inside. So Guys Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific time on KCAA Radio here in Southern California, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 1050 AM. The replay of the show is every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. The podcast drops worldwide every Thursday, and my YouTube also posts every Thursday worldwide. Robert Manny is the name of the uh, channel, M-A-N-N-I. It's called Guys Guys TV. And for this particular show with, uh, with uh, Larry, we did, uh, we did a couple of segments. We did part one. We just did part two, but also this additional content. So in a third piece of content, Larry interviewed me on my YouTube channel for a half hour. And I got to tell you, he is a pro. He cracked me open like a walnut and got me talking about things I wasn't planning on talking about. And he it really taught me a lot. So ha- having been on the other side of the table with Larry Grobel for three different sessions has been a true education. And I- I'm looking forward to more. We've also uh, set up some additional content on YouTube to allow Larry to read a couple of his short stories. And he's a heck of a writer, very poignant show, not tell type stories that really uh, will will kind of make an emotional connection with you very quickly. And short stories is kind of a lost art form. People don't really appreciate them, but the ones that are well-written are really terrific. And Larry's a great writer. So thank you for that, Larry Grobelsa. That's all on the YouTube channel. So my website is robertmanny.com. You can download three free chapters there of my novel, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love. It's been called The Male Sex in the City, Male Successor to Sex in the City. And it is, uh, it's a rom-com. It's about two guys in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money. I'm all over social media, so you can find me on the usual platforms, and I'm here for you. Every week, we've got more and more great minds lined up to share their information, their journeys, and their insights with you. So, Guys Guys Radio, I'll see you next week, and as I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first. Finish first.